The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Lord's Supper, communion. What does that mean? In John 17, Jesus is in the garden. He's about to go to the cross and die. Well, why is he doing that? Well, in the last hundred years or so, in America particularly, the church has come to believe that he went to the cross with me on his mind. He came to die for me. And if I'd been the only one that would ever believe, he would have still come and died just for me. But that individualistic viewpoint leads to division and disunity. In several places, we read that Jesus came out of obedience to the Father. And in Philippians, we read that he humbled himself and was obedient even to death on a cross. Back in John 17, he's about to face the agony of the cross. And what we hear him praying for is not for us as individuals, as much as he's praying for us to be one. Let's listen in as he prays and listen to the plural language that he uses. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. But scripture has been used, or rather misused, throughout the ages to separate rather than unite. Remember, it was God's word that was twisted in the garden. And it caused a rift between the only two residents in his perfect creation, it manifested again between Cain and Abel and resulted in the very first murder. It was scripture that was used to divide God's people in the Old Testament times into sects. It was scripture that was used to justify the killing of the prophets. It was scripture that was used to authorize the crucifixion of Jesus. And it was scripture that was used in the early church to separate the believers. In our own country, it is scripture that's been used to support both sides of every political issue that's ever existed. The reason the pilgrims came was justified by scripture. But then both sides used scripture to say why we should or should not declare our independence from the king. Both sides used scripture to say that slavery was evil and that slavery was a God-given right. Scripture 
was used by every political candidate on both sides of every issue, and it's one of Satan's best tools to undo what Jesus prayed for in the garden and the reason for which he died. Let me illustrate from my own life. I was born into a home that belonged to a denomination that firmly believed we had a corner on the truth. When we moved to Roswell, since there wasn't a congregation of our beliefs, my mother and father, my brother and I, we were the only Christians in the whole city. And what were some of those things that made our particular beliefs so unique? Well, for one, we were King James only. Well, now, that didn't particularly make us unique. But another one was that we believed that when you died, you didn't go immediately to heaven. You slept until Jesus resurrected you at Resurrection Day. Obviously, those are serious matters of salvation. So, it wasn't until I was in high school and I was inducted into the Order of Demolay, an organization that has many principles that are taken from Scripture, incorporated into its rituals, that I gained some friends that went to other churches and came from families that were serving the Lord. Hmm. But they had some different viewpoints from me. And little by little, I came to realize that you could have some different opinions about some inconsequential things and still be a Christian. So when I came to college, I made up my mind that I was going to seek out believers and I was going to have fellowship. So I, along with some names that might ring some bells for some of us that have been in this congregation longer, I, along with Jack Batson and his future wife, Jane Scott Batson, and George Peterson and his future wife, Ginger Banks Peterson, Sandy Reidenauer and his future wife, Donna Hastings, and Dorothy Van Antwerp, along with many others, well, we formed what became the core of the original campus house. It was there that Dean Overton led us in deep discussions of matters of faith, and we shared and discussed and learned and grew and changed. We often had different participants that came from completely different traditions. We had some Catholics. We had some Methodists. We had some Baptists. We had some from the Church of Christ. For a season, we even had a young lady who came who was a Baha'i. We listened. We discussed. I don't know if that girl became a Christian or not, but we certainly planted some seeds. Scripture has been used, or again, as I say, misused, to divide us into denominations. It's being used right now, and it will certainly be used in the coming months as we approach an election. And it will be used to cause division in our country, in our community, and among the very body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, it must not be so. Those scriptures that are used are typically taken out of the context of what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 60, that the sum of thy word is truth. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 27, says that he did not shrink back from preaching the whole gospel 
the whole counsel of God. Again, writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he states, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The true purpose of Scripture is to convict us of our selfish desires, convict us of our sins, not the sins of others, and to infuse us with His love and grace and unite us as one. As we take these elements, we are declaring that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died to redeem us from sin that we may be a unified body to go forth to do His will in the world. When we have differing opinions, we are to have open ears, soft hearts, and grace in our fellowship. Christ's body is manifested in our mortal bodies, and it is His blood that flows through our veins. By eating and drinking these emblems, we are declaring that we are one family, brothers and sisters, in reality even more so than by biology. So let us go forth, united as one, to do his work in the world. In closing, I want to borrow a prayer from John Christensen, who lived from the year 344 to 407. So if you would pray with me. Lord, deprive me not of your heavenly joys. Lord, deliver me from eternal torments. Lord, if I have sinned in mind or thought, in word or deed, forgive me. Lord, deliver me from all ignorance, forgetfulness, cowardice, and stony insensibilities. Lord, deliver me from every temptation. Lord, enlighten my heart, which, is, which evil desires have darkened. Lord, I being human have sinned, but you being the generous God have mercy on me, knowing the sickness of my soul. Lord, send your grace to my help that I may glorify your name. Lord of heaven and earth, remember me, your sinful servant, shameful and unclean. Remember me in your kingdom by the grace of Christ. Amen. There's an old fable of some people that heard of a place called the Cave of Truth. They got together, they discussed it, and they said, let's go find this. So they set on a long journey, and they got to, uh, after a long, difficult journey, they arrived at the cave. There was an old man sitting there at the edge of the cave, and he was the guardian of the cave. They asked, can we enter? And he replied, how deeply in the cave of truth do you wish to go? So they backed up, and they all talked a minute for a minute, and they came back together, and they went up to him, and they asked, and they said this. Just deep enough to say we've been there. Now, a lot of us have grown up with the scripture, the truth will set you free. 
And that sounds great in theory, but can we handle it? Can we handle all of the truth? We're in this series called This is the Way. Uh, we're looking at the early church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today. If you're online or on the radio, thanks for joining us here at Central Christian. Join us in Acts chapter 4. We're going to read there in just a moment. But the premise of this series is how did they do that? How did this small group of people that didn't have any power or authority, how did they make so much difference in the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. Many estimates say that within the first 50 years of Jesus, after Jesus' death, that it had spread almost 2,000 miles. How? How did they do that? How did they get viral before viral was a thing? Today, specifically, we're going to pick up on a story that we started last week, and we're going to ask some other questions in this. And the main question is, how did they do that? But some of the secondaries are, how do we deal with opposition? How do you deal with opposition? And specifically today, I want you to look at where the opposition is coming from. The, the opposition in this story, who is it and where is it coming from? Are you praying for power and are you praying with power? Join me in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear the threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the building, the place, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word of God with boldness. Now we say frequently here, context is king. We need to go back and look at the last two chapters and realize how much they make a difference to this story. Now we started a couple of weeks ago with Peter at Pentecost and, and he stood up on the steps and said, you people need to repent. You need to, to make some changes. And, and it was a message from an ordinary guy. A couple of days later, Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. They see a lame guy laying there. A guy's been uh, unable to move his whole life. They heal him right by the beautiful gate. And the same power we talked last week, the same power was the power of the Holy Spirit is in you and I. There is healing power. There is power to break every chain. But things are not just hunky-dory there. This upset the religious powers. Now, the Romans, they could care less. <laughs> you little Jews, you little Jesus followers, do whatever you want to do. Just do, just 
hush, all right? Just don't, be, don't make any problems. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, and in verse 2, it says that Peter and John were, and these people were preaching resurrection from the dead. That upset the Sadducees, some of the leading people. But it was, it was empowering people. In verse 4, it says, many believed. And they came to 5,000. The number was 5,000 men with many more women and children. So some estimates anywhere from eight to 14,000 people could be followers of Jesus. Now, remember, we started with 12. We went to 120, went to 3,000. Now we're at 5,000 or even up to 12 or 14,000. And the Sanhedrin calls these two guys in front of them to let them have it. Now, the Sanhedrin is the religious leading council. They had some political power, but, but it, their main world was the religious world. And they started telling them, you boys better hush. And it says in verse 12, they were amazed at the boldness of these guys. They weren't even educated. They were just regular old fishermen, regular people, ordinary people. And so this council all gets together and, man, what are we going to do about this? They gather them all up and they threaten them and say, you better hush. All right. In verse 21, they hush and then they release them. But I just keep going back to this idea that God gave the greatest cultural movement in the history of humanity to a bunch of regular, ordinary people. That's how it got there, which is us, you and me and regular people. So these ordinary people are thrown into prison. How did the church react Did they protest? Did they call their congressman? Did they start posting on social media about how bad the government is? No, it says in verse 24 that we just read, they, when they heard the report, they, they lifted their voice in prayer. Do you hear the immediacy of it? The urgency of it? They saw this as important. Now, I've told you the whole premise of this series is to how did these guys, without the help of the Internet, without the help of mail, without the help of transportation, they didn't even have highways. They just had roads and walking. How did it spread so far? How did, they, how did it do so many things? Maybe this part right here is big. They just got together and they hung on to each other and they prayed. One of the greatest gifts we have is the ability to pray for one another. It's a, a beautiful gift. Now, I got a hunch somebody has come up to you at some time or other and say, hey, will you pray for me about this? Anybody? Come on, you can raise your hands. All right. So I, I'm guessing the most of us have had somebody say something like that. Here's my question. Don't raise your hand. Do we do it? Do we, do we really pray? And I hope you do. But some of us, sometimes we get a little busy and we mean to, but we don't get her back around to it. Anybody? Because, because that happens to us. Do we actually pray on those issues? We have a prayer list that we put in our bulletin, send out, Hey, y'all take this and put it on your fridge. And I know some of you do, and I know a lot of us intend to, but it kind of slips through the cracks. I want us to get that. Let's actually pray for each other. Let's actually pray together. And let's make a difference. Do you see how they responded? How the church and the believers responded? They said, all the believers lifted their voices together. I love Scott's words today. Acting on faith should be a unifier, not a divider. But people have fought about the Bible for years, centuries. 
It should be a unifying factor, and we should be the ones that are unifying. I don't believe, I, I hear, hear me good, I, I really think we will never boldly transform Portalis with God's word unless we first embrace unity in the spirit. Until we are the ones that are saying, yes, we want to partner with people of different backgrounds so that we can make a difference. If you're new to this church, there's some things I'd like you to know about our church family. Number one, um, we're completely debt free. We don't owe anybody anything except our monthly, you know, water and electric and all that stuff. The, the reason we do that, we believe in that so that we can accomplish more and we can make more impact in our community doing more things. Uh, Franklin's put up a little board in our prayer room in there that shows some of the ministries that we support here. All the money and uh, choices are made right here. We partner, one of the big things that we have been partnering with is what's called the Roosevelt County Ministerial Alliance. It is a bunch of different churches and organizations that get together to meet the needs to help with utility bills and food and and homelessness and trying to deal with some of the issues right here. But you need to understand there's Baptists and Methodists and different people of different backgrounds. And the community needs to see us getting along. The more they can see us getting along and working together, the more they can see that the body of Christ works together. Amen. Amen. We support a thing called foundations of faith. It is a, it started with some Baptist people in the Baptist churches that go into the dairies to, to deal with Spanish speaking people. They use Spanish speaking people. And when we heard about it, man, this thing is great. This is what we want to do. We want to get involved in, in ministry and we don't know how to do it because I don't speak Spanish and we, uh, we don't know what to do. So we, well, they're already doing it. Let's partner with them. And we went to them and we're not a Baptist name on the building out there. And they were kind of a little, are you sure? Yeah, you're doing good things here. Meals on wheels. We want to be a way to empower and make a difference in our community. Not a denomination, but our community. Friends, we're not going to train up a generation to live morally righteous lives without first showing them God's love. And we walk around and say, you people and you people, and we wag a lot of fingers and they're going to see that. And when they get to high school, college, when they can, they're out of here. All you people do is fight. All right. I don't want any part of that. We've seen that happen. Haven't we? Let's be the generation that changes that. There's a lot of ideas out there. I'm not saying everything goes. I'm saying let's love God and love others. L1 and L2. And let's be serious about that. How many of you would agree with this statement? Training for the U.S. Special Forces is hard. Is that from the uh, duh category of all time? All right. If you've ever seen some of these, I'm not, I'm not be able to do that. But I, I, I got a book this week. It was really fun. Uh, it's called Deliberate Discomfort by a guy named Jason Van Camp. And he was a spec up tr- trainer. And now it's a business kind of a book. And, and he said, what is interesting has happened is... In, in ranger training and SEAL training, when they first started, they tried to train them to how to deal with every situation, right? But the world moves too fast. And they can't possibly come up with a procedure to how to deal with everything. So what they have changed to doing is they are training them how to adapt on the fly. 
They're not training them to, here, follow step one, step two, step three. They're not doing that. They're, they're training them how to get their footing solid when everything is not solid. How to, how to devise a plan, adapt to the plan, and, and move along. Friends, I've been looking this week, and I have not found a verse. Now, I'm saying that not sarcastically. If you find it, please talk to me. But I can't find a verse that says... God's plan is our business. I haven't found it. I've looked. Well, surely there's got to be because we're all the time going, God, we know this is part of your plan and we want to know what your plan is. You know what I, I have found, though? I found a lot of verses that are almost the exact opposite of that. Things like Psalm 32 and verse 8. I will instruct you in the way you should go. As if to say, don't need your opinion done. I got this handled. <laughs> Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. As if to say, you're not going to understand this. You just got to trust me. Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for Don and for those that love Don. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't work that way. But we translate in our head that way, don't we? Well, I love God, so it's all going to work out for me. No, we, we don't get the plan. Do you realize that God didn't give Peter and John a plan? He gave them a purpose. He didn't give them all the answers. We talked a couple of weeks about, ago about how these guys died. If they would have got that plan, do you think they would have stayed on? This is a terrible plan, Jesus. I, I really do not want to die this way. They didn't get a plan. He said, go do this. He hasn't given us a map, friends. He has given us a mission. And it's not a blueprint that we trace over. It's not a formula that we check a bunch of boxes. It is trust him and adapt. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I don't need to see your plan. I need to see you. And do you see how they prayed? Sovereign God. They were declaring his power, not the predicament they were in, not the problems they were facing. They were calling out God's power. They didn't pray in fear of persecution. They prayed in response to it. It was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. And unity in the face of opposition. This is a, a picture of it right here. When we pray in his sovereignty, we are praying, you're in charge, God. It's not a passive thing. It, it should fuel us. It should be our passion that you're in charge. Muncie, Indiana, 1999, Amber Scott sat in her car at a railroad crossing. It was a foggy morning. She was on her way to work. The fog was thick, but train was coming through. So she was waiting for the train to finish so she could go across. Apparently, the pickup behind her did not see her because of the fog. Came up on her fast, hit her from behind, drove her into a moving train and underneath one of the cargo cars, and it started dragging her sideways. 
The engineer could not see what was going on. Everybody, it was so foggy. They didn't know what was going on. It jammed her under and was just dragging her down, tearing things up on the way down. And she's screaming for help and screaming for assistance and doesn't know what to do. She reaches over, grabs her cell phone, tries to dial 911. She makes connection, but it won't stay connected because of all the noise. Then she tries to call her mom and same thing happens. And she says this, all I could do was call God. When the car finally stopped after about seven or eight terrorizing minutes, the car was mangled. She said it didn't even look like a car, but somehow she bent the door open, walked out with two cuts on her arms. How? How in the world do you do that? Did she pray for an understanding of God's plan in that moment? Oh, gee, God, I would really like the memo on that getting smashed by a train thing. We don't get that. She prayed in response to the circumstances. We've said this before. We're all one phone call from our knees. We need to be people of prayer and people of God's word. But I... I want you to get this so much, I put it on the back of your bulletin today. Confident faith leads to confident prayers. When I know my God can, <clears throat> I don't have to doubt. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were, you know, they were about to get thrown in the fire and they said, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, <laughs> but even if he doesn't, I'm still on his team. I'm still going with him. These guys quoted David in Psalm 2. In fact, they even talked about the Holy Spirit being in the Old Testament. If you read that, the Holy Spirit was with David who wrote these things. Question, why are they quoting God's words to God? You ever thought about that? Do you think he needs to be reminded? Wow, I forgot all about Psalm 2. That's a good one. No, that's not what it was. They were declaring that God is in control. They prayed confidently because he could be trusted. Thank you, Marie, for talking about closed doors. Maybe you're facing something that is closed and you go, how can you? Don't, don't worry about how. Just talk about God. You can. You can change my heart. You can open up my anger and let it go. You can, you can teach me to forgive. If you'll do that, I want to see you. That's the God we serve. I've been struggling with this, not uh, just trying to figure this out lately. So I've been trying to, in my prayer life, I know God is, but I get busy and then I start looking at my prayers and then I kind of notice the news and my brain gets ADHD and goes everywhere else. Anybody else? Good. Glad you're with me. All right. But I've been trying to do something that I read recently and said, picture yourself in the way that, uh, that you can see a God that does things you can't do. And so I started going back and I started trying to put myself on the shores of the Red Sea when Moses did, you know, that right there. How cool would that be to watch that? You know, uh, or, or at the crucifixion, you remember where it, the sun got dark? We had an eclipse yesterday. The sun got dark, everything. And dead people started walking around. Do you notice that? Go back and read that part. That's wild. We don't talk about that at Easter very much. How's that going to be for dinner that night? Hi, Grandma. Grandma? Uh, 
We buried you last week. What are you doing? You know, that would be weird. All right. And these guys, John and, and Peter, had, they, they watched a guy walk. All these friends watched a guy walk that, that had never stepped in his entire life. That's the God we serve. Is your prayer life confident? When we see it in our head that the, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It changes us. We need to pray confidently because our God is able. I read a story this last week about a, a bunch of monks in Tibet. And they wrote and they created a prayer drum. Now, in that belief, they have prayer wheels. But they made this big drum. They hollowed it out. And they would write down prayers and put them in this barrel. And it was, it was right beside a walkway. So one of the guys came up with the idea. And he came along and he put in on a little spindle. And he had a crank, handled, put a crank handle on it. So when they walked by, you gave it a crank. And their thought was, you were releasing thousands of prayers. So every time you cranked it, more and more prayers went up, all the prayers that were in there. Well, another guy came along after a little while and said, well, we got a river right there. And he built a paddle wheel out of it, a gear, and he set it up so the, the water coming through the river would turn it all the time. So the prayers were going up all the time. And we look at that and I go, I love the idea of 365-day prayer. But what it became to them is, Nobody needed to pray anymore. They just, it was efficient. It handled it for us. Do we realize, I don't believe God is looking for efficient prayers. I think he's looking for passionate prayers, tear-filled prayers. People I, I want to talk to. Do we forget how urgent the gospel is? Because that needs to be on us. If those people... 2,000 years ago could go 2,000 miles in 50 years. How much could we do in Portalis if we really believed the urgency? And, and look at what they pray for. Give us boldness in preaching your word. They didn't ask for the problems to go away. They didn't ask for the threats to go away. They didn't pray for strength to last. They prayed for boldness in speaking about you. Now, I asked you at the beginning to notice who it was that is causing them problems, who it is that is giving them the most trouble, and it's church people. That, that's really what it boils down to. It's, it's religious leaders. Friends, sometimes our biggest opposition is going to come from good, God-fearing people. I don't like it in, any more than you do. But we need boldness to deal with it correctly. But boldness is going to trigger opposition. Many of you may have heard growing up, when there's, a, when there's a fire, you can either pour gasoline on it or water on it. Unless it's a grease fire, which, you know. But, but you stay with the simile here, uh, with the metaphor here. You can either pour water on it or you can pour, pour gasoline on it. We are in a culture with the internet that has normalized, it has, well, it's normalized talking bad about other people. It makes it super easy to get on there. Well, I can't believe they didn't serve me the way I wanted to be served. You know, it makes it very super easy for us to do it. Friends, as Christ's followers, that is not in our job description. We do not get the freedom to slander somebody. We don't get the freedom to lie. We don't get the freedom to gossip. Gossip, that is not our calling. And it should change how we talk.
talk. They didn't ask to get even. Well, God, can you strike down that Sanhedrin? We can show them what to do. No, they didn't ask for any of that. They asked to speak boldly about him. And they changed their pronouns. Now, before you start throwing at me, and a lot of people don't like that statement, they changed their pronouns from look at what I can do to look at what you can do. Your strength, your healing power. Open up your healing power and change things. Do we realize that the healings that Jesus did and the healings that Peter and John and other people did were not party tricks? They were meant to show God's authority over this world. We don't need tricks. We need to speak of his power. We need to speak about him. We need to talk to our friends and our neighbors. We need to speak boldly about you. Just show how good you are, God. Just show them. We started this, I started with a little fable about going into the cave of truth. Some of us want just enough truth to say we've been there. Some of us want just enough Jesus to check a little box on our resume. We can't go there anymore. We got to go deeper, people. We have got to be that people, the way that makes a difference. We need his truth in deep inside of us and realizing that we are free. Boldness is not recklessness. It's not impulsive. It's praying for others to have courage. We need to boldly stand beside people that are hurting and point them to him. Stick with me. I know we're a little long, but you're going to stay with me for a couple more minutes. I heard a story this week about something that happened up in Minnesota or Canada or somewhere up there. Uh, two dogs got loose and they went in and they were running away and they ran into the forest and got in their forest. And one of the dogs fell in a pit, but the other dog didn't leave. He stayed right there beside the pit and barked for three straight days until somebody heard Hey, my friend's stuck here. (laughs) We can learn something from a dog. We see people daily that are in financial pits. We see people that are in emotional holes, relational traps. And we need to be the people standing beside them, holding them up, picking them up, not pointing at them about, well, you're wrong. We need to stand with them. What if we believed deep in our soul that God puts people in our path for a reason and a purpose? And if we would get that, what if we lived, and I'm not saying this with any sarcasm at all. I mean this seriously. What if God's people lived as if God intended for us to bring hope to our community? That he intended for this body of believers, anybody watching online, anybody listening on the radio, that we're not the gripers, that we're the purveyors of hope, that we build others up. It sounds a lot like that banner that's out there that Franklin made, love God, love others. This is the way. This is the way we will impact others. Not when we figure out God's plan. We don't need to know God's plan. We need to know our purpose, and that is to make a difference for him. The Bible is not a story about how to plan for your life. It's not a a story of what to expect, except for to say, it's going to have problems. Jesus said, when they hate you, he didn't say, if they don't like you. He said, when they hate you, they hated me first. 
And when this world gives you problems, don't worry. I already overcame this world. You just go tell them about me. And if we would get that purpose today, we won't have to worry about the plan. We just need to live in his power. That is the way the church made a difference. And that's the way we will make a difference. God, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see how you are working. Open our heart to see who is hurting. Father, there are so many hurting. May we bring hope when they can't see any hope. When all they see is addiction or pain or chronic pain or struggles or family brokenness. May we show them you. We want to see you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.